And Father, we come before you once again, Lord, just to thank you, to glorify you, Lord, to worship you, Lord. Father, we ask that you would just speak to our hearts, Lord. Father, I pray for the Holy Spirit just to fall upon each and every one of us, especially upon me, Lord, that I would be able to convey the message that you have given me, Lord. And Father, that I would always represent you according to your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why don't you greet one another and have a seat? Just a little different tonight, as you can see, not just the person being different, but uh, our format. But just a reminder, well, I'll be covering over the bulletin now, and so just a reminder of our service times, of course. Sunday morning services are 10 a.m., but we also have Sunday evening services at 6 p.m., which you guys all know. But we have a midweek study also on Thursdays at 7 p.m., and for the guys, we meet on Wednesday morning at 6.30. Currently, Pastor Mike is going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And the neat thing about that day is that we actually give breakfast. Not that we give, but you're more than welcome to join us. It is free of cost. Just all you got to do is wake up and show up and have breakfast and stay as long as you can for the study. Uh, just a couple of things to highlight on the bulletin. There are uh, just a couple of needs in the church for those of you that are desiring to just take another step of faith and move a little more towards serving the Lord. And there's an opportunity in children's ministry. Actually, there's always an opportunity in children's ministry. So I just encourage you if, if you desire to serve the Lord in that area. But also we have it so you might say, well, you know what? I don't, I don't like kids. Well, that's okay, but you're supposed to love them. But if you, you just can't do children's ministry for whatever reason, you'd you much rather be a, a creative person. We also have the photo ministry. You can be a shutterbug and just sit back and take pictures. And if you don't even want to do that, that you don't want to move around, you can be like some of the guys in the back or the ladies in the back. Uh, presentation, sound, or video. But there's always an opportunity to be involved. For the guys itself... Uh, there is starting a new men's small group Bible study that will s- commence, start this Tuesday at 7 p.m. And they'll be going through the book of Acts. You can actually pick up your book for those of you that would like to join and sign up. You could just go and grab a book from the information booth or the bookstore. I'm not sure which one. And, and it's $7. That way you can come prepared for the first uh, lesson. Operation Christmas Child's coming up. So make sure you pick up your boxes and, and bring them back as you can see. We have three. That's, that's at least one for me, one for my wife, and one for my grandson. So we're covered. I don't know about the rest of the people in the world, but, but at least we got three up here. But no, just to encourage you to, to uh, pick it up, pray, and just fill it up, and then bring it back for the kids. And not really, I am not going to take one of these because I already seen what's in there. I don't want it, but no. Uh, they're for the kids all over the world, and it's a really neat operation. Uh, it's really nice. Oh, just uh, one quick verse or two verses in regards to our tithes and offerings. Um, and we have, they have chosen Second uh, Corinthians chapter uh, 9, verse 7. But I'm going to go ahead and start at verse 6. And it says, But I say, but, but this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, specifically, the verse that was chosen for today is, Let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Well, the first thing I I see is that it says, let each one, so that makes it a personal invitation. It's, it's, It's so that you realize that a relationship with Christ is a personal relationship. And you'll see things that it's telling you. It's always telling you and each one. And so that's the first thing I see. Then the next thing I say goes to the heart. It says, says, as you purpose in your heart, as you purpose in your heart. So that's a thing, that's a commitment that you make within yourself, and it's you and the Lord, and then you make that decision, and then you, you purpose in your heart. We're told also that Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile his, his, his body with the things of the world, the delicacies, and he just went vegan or vegetarian, and, and it was great. Yeah, he, he had visions and all kinds of really neat things. Uh, my family, half my family's vegan, and it's just, it's just so hard. They're just withering away, but no, but just, 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 no, just kidding. Okay, getting back. Now, the next thing I see is not grudgingly, and, and basically what the Bible's telling us there is that, you know, oh, I just got to give. Oh, I, if I don't, it's just, no, 
it's supposed to be a willing, a willing gift. And the last thing is not out of necessity, you know. You know, actually, the grudgingly is the one, the one you say, oh, I, I, hate, I hate giving that. I don't want to give it, but you give it anyways. And then the necessity is the one, well, oh, I just have to give. But no, what it says is to be a cheerful giver. And, and actually, in the, in the Greek, we're told that it's hilarious. It just means you're just enjoying it. That is one of the greatest things since sliced bread or whipped cream and ice cream and all that thing. And you just love to give. But anyways, we're not collecting today, so don't worry about it. But if you do... Uh, desire to worship the Lord with your tithes and offering, just drop it off in the agape box on the way out. Okay, enough said about the bulletin. You guys want more information about that? Uh, just pick one up on the way out. Okay, uh, today I will be uh, sharing with you guys from uh, Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. So if you guys want to turn your Bible there too. And I have chosen to, to call this, uh, this teaching, if you will, or opportunity is, who are you, Lord? And it'll all still go, come together as, as we go on and as I share with you guys. The really neat thing about this is that it reminded me, it reminded me of a brother, uh, he's now gone to be with the Lord. Uh, some of you may know him. His name was Steve Potter. And he used to tell me, you know what? Every time you teach, I could never figure out what you're talking about until the very end. And I tell him, well, that's the whole idea, because if I give you the answer right away, then you can get up and leave. So I'm going to keep you in suspense till the end, so then it's all put together, and, and I keep you here longer. But anyways, uh, if you haven't done so yet, turn, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, starting with verse 1, and it states, "Is this, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him, to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any uh, who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Kind of a first hint right there. That has something to do with the title. He said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice and seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. Okay. Now, those of you that have, you know, been coming to our church for any number of years or have been believers and, and gone through the Bible, you've probably gone through these passages several times. I personally, myself, is I go through the Bible, specifically the New Testament, minimum on my own personal reading once a year. So since I've been doing that, it's been several years. So I've gone through this so many times. Now, here's the thing. What I want to do is I want to take a short time and look at three specific parts or three passages from this portion of Scripture. There is so much, but I just can't get into it like I like getting into it. Some of you guys know because Brother Christian in the back goes, are we going to get out of here before 8 o'clock tonight? And I said, yes, Christian. And by 7.55, I'll make sure everybody leaves. Okay. No, just a joke. Just a joke. Okay. But here's the neat thing about it. And I... I just love to get into the, the, the Word of God because it just speaks to my heart in so many things. So what we'll do is we'll just look at three points and we'll move on. So we'll just jump right into it. In verse 1, it specifically tells us, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So the first thing that catches my eyes is it says he was still breathing threats threats and murders still so don't let that word get past you the word still why well to me and hopefully to you by the end of this you'll recognize why i am so 
putting so much emphasis on this. Now, in the King James Version, which I love the New King James, but the New King, uh, the New King James is the one that I, I use and I read on, and I love that one. The King James uses the word yet, yet. And actually, in the Greek, now, I'm terrible at Greek, so it's eti, eti. And that word is translated as yet, still, more, further, longer, and of a thing which went on formally. Now, here's, here's something so that you could grasp it the way that I kind of see why that word still is so important to me. And it is. Now, I've been told, and I don't know how you know, true this is, that I, I am OCD. That's obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, am I that way? I don't know. You ask my wife, you ask my kids, they may say yes. I'm so picky sometimes that when I go and set up the, uh, the, the fellowship area and guys are helping me and I tell them, no, no, it goes right here. And Sal, what difference does it make if the table is six inches this way or six inches that way? I said, to you it doesn't, but to me it does. So I'm that way. And so I kind of want to see Paul being like that, that he is so meticulous. Now, for those of you that, and I don't have the opportunity to just uh, really build this up and show you how meticulous he was, but he was a pretty darn tootin' kind of guy. I don't know if anybody's from Navarro and heard the term, like a pit bull on a pork chop. When they're on it, they're on it, and they're not letting go. And that was what he was. Now, see, he was still, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples as he's walking into Jerusalem. I'm sorry, into Damascus. So that's important. So, and the reason why I really want, it, want, it, want you guys to really think of it is, is because it's a big deal once you see the big picture. Now, first of all, you need to realize who Paul is. Well, actually, I'm going to keep calling him Paul, but at this time, his name is Saul. He has not been given the name of Paul yet. We don't see that till later on in the book of Acts. Right now, he's specifically Saul of Tarsus. First of all, he is a murderer. Now, some of you, those of students of Scripture, those that read these portions of Scripture before are going to say, wait, he really didn't kill no one. All he did was approve of it and hold the clothes of the people who were, th- who were stoning the guy that we know as Stephen, one of the first martyrs of Jesus Christ after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I'd love to be able to tell you all about that, but I just don't have time. So just, he was there. Okay, now, so here's the interesting thing. There's an old saying in Spanish, and it says, Tanto peque el que mata la vaca, que el que le detiene la pata. In the vernacular English, it means the same way the guy who kills the cow is sinning as the guy who holds the leg. Okay? I've totally lost you guys. I can see it. Doesn't anybody ever hear any old sayings from Mexico anywhere? Bobby, you're the oldest one here and you never heard of it? That's okay. Never mind. Don't mention it. Okay. But here's, here's what you really need to, to see. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, the first portion, it says, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. 1 John chapter 3 Verse 15, the first portion of that verse says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Now, let's go back to Paul. Let's go back to Paul, uh, or Saul, at this time. What do you think he's doing when he's breathing murders and threats? He's saying under his breath how much he hates these disciples, these Christians, these people, these holy rollers. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. I don't blame Paul for any of the stuff that he does because later on he writes that he did it out of ignorance. I myself, I could remember when, as I was growing up and my family raised me Catholic. And you know what? I I thank them for that because that gave me an understanding of what the Bible says. But I didn't really know Christ until I recognized who Christ was. So just remember that. But I used to make fun of Christians. 
I really did. I'd call them holy rollers. I, I, I'd call them just different names. I, I'd call them guys that needed crutches. And the funny thing about it is that I did it because everybody else was doing it. Not because they did ever, ever did anything to me. If anything, they were the, some of the most kindest guys, if you, if you believe it or not. I was in the Marine Corps, and one of my best friends when I was in Okinawa, uh, he, he was a Christian. And I just love hanging out with him, but I'd be the first one to start making fun of him when everybody else was, was making fun of him. So just, just to throw that in the back of your mind. Okay, also Saul was a man of great power. Now, he is a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin was, was the, the 72-men council of Jerusalem, you know, that they were very powerful. They were the ones that voted on people to die or not. So, so he was a very powerful man. He was a Pharisee. A Pharisee was a sect within Jerusalem which was very strict, very law. It, they were what we would call legalistic to the Maximilius. I mean, beyond measure, okay? And another thing, he had letters from the high priest to do what he was going to do. And it says that he obtained letters to go into Damascus and to go and look for these Christians, these people, so that he can drag them off to prison, lock them up. And you know, and they say that, you know, the Bible is racist. I'm I'm sexist. I mean, that the Bible is sexist. No way. He was going to arrest both men and women. He didn't care who they were. He he wasn't picky. He was going to take them both. So that's something interesting. Now, why am I, am I making such a big deal out of this? Because there is a big change that's going to take place. You need to see how Saul was truly an... I put down here in a little note, he was a bad dude. He was bad. He had power. He had, he had the backing of the high priest to be able to do basically whatever he wanted to do. Okay, So you need to see that. And the reason why is because he does a complete 180 after his conversion. Now, for some of you, that would, you know, that, that's pretty cool. That's good. But in reality, what you have to recognize and see is that you're going from wanting to kill people to wanting to love people. And not just people in general, specifically the people who believe in Jesus Christ and have accepted them as a, their Lord and Savior. Because in everything that was within Saul... He thought they were going against the law of God. Okay, now just throw that in your mind. Now, the Bible does not tell us much of what Saul did between the death of Stephen and his conversion on the road to Damascus. The only picture that we actually have of him of during this time... Now, it's probably easy to guess that during this time he was probably doing the same thing, and that's why I brought out the OCD thing, that you're doing, you're making sure, you're making sure, you're making sure, because... That gives you an idea that he was doing probably the same thing. And the reason why is because in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women and committing to prison. So we see that he is actually already just, just destroying, if you will, He's making havoc. Now, everybody understands what the word havoc means. It just, it, basically, the, the best way to look at it for me is just imagine a huge salad bowl. No dressing, no tomatoes, just a huge salad bowl. Okay, you put it in the middle of your most nicest room that you have in your house, and you got company coming over. Okay, and when you hear the doorbell ring and you're getting ready to go open that door, you go into that nice room that you have, that you have the Wayfair couches, you have the little, the little things, you have everything all nice and neat, and you go up and you just take that salad bowl and you just start throwing the lettuce and you throw the carrots and remember, no tomatoes and no salad dressing because you've got to be able to pick it up afterwards. But you just created a havoc. You just destroyed everything in there. Okay, that's the best picture that I can give you in regards to havoc. Now, I'm going to continue reading and it says in verse 2, and and asked letters from him, that's the high priest, to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why 
are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, here's where, I don't want to say that I want to camp out, but here's where, to me, is the most important portion of this this passage, if you will. Now, mind you, it doesn't mean that it is the most important because tomorrow you may read the same thing and the Lord speak to you in such a miraculous way, one verse before, one verse after, maybe two or three verses after. What I'm saying is what I received from the Lord. And it says right there, Saul asked, who are you, Lord? Now, why does Saul ask this? Why does Saul ask, who are you, Lord? Okay. Now, it's interesting. Uh, you got, have you guys ever heard uh, The Case for Christ by, by Strobel's? It's kind of like an investigation and everything. So I kind of cheated a little bit. Not that I went and looked at his book or anything. But I wanted to get the evidence of why he said it. Because to me, it was important to know why he would say, Who are you, Lord? Now, mind you, this is important. It says, Because there, be, there has to have been something, something for this arrogant man. And I do say that Saul at this point was a very arrogant man to give the title of Lord to someone. Okay? Because he was all that in a bag of chips prior to this taking place. And now he's recognizing someone as Lord. Now, it, we go back and we look at the original Greek, and it, the Lord that he's using there is the one of high respect. Okay, so the next thing we see here is that there is a bright light. The scripture specifically tells us there was a bright light. Now, this is Saul's conversion. This, this portion of Scripture. Yet, in two other portions of Scripture, later on in the Acts, we're, giving, we're given two other perspectives, if you will, or two other times that he gives this testimony. And in Acts chapter 22, verse 6, we are told it was noon and the light was great. Okay. It was noon and the light was great. Now, the reason why I want to say this is because right now, and for most people, in order for them to accept this as truth, all they have is what's called circumstantial evidence. And the reason it's circumstantial evidence is because they are not eyewitnesses of the actual proceedings that are taking place at the time, or the crime, if you will, even though this was not a crime. But I'm just using that word so you can recognize the importance of this. Now, all we have is circumstantial evidence. So, in one portion of Scripture, it says that it was a very bright light, which was here. And the other one, it says it was noon, so we're given a little more evidence, and that it was a great light. Now, in Acts chapter 26, verse 13, it states that it was midday, which coincides with noon, And the light, and here's the key, the light was brighter than the sun. In this portion of Scripture, we're actually given that whatever caused the light to be shined or to reflect it, and it wasn't a reflection, it was the actual light that's coming out, was brighter than the sun. So, if you look at this, and here's the interesting thing that I see. Now, and I I wish I could develop it a little more, but I just can't. As you learn the scriptures, as you, first of all, you have to understand that the the writings in the Bible and the understanding of them are those who have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. So it becomes easier to understand, okay? But the Bible also tells us that each one is given a measure of faith. So we know that faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the Word of God. So in taking all that into, if you will, calculation or bringing it all together, as you continue growing in your faith, you're going to be seeing things that the Lord is teaching you as you grow 
You grow in your faith. You grow in your love. You grow in your respect. You grow in your service. You grow in all different types of areas because we are to become more like Christ. Now, we will never obtain to be like Christ, but we are to strive to be like Christ. Now, the reason I want to make this a big deal is because when Saul, or when actually, when Saul says this, he's now Paul, and I'm talking about uh, Acts chapter 26, so this is further into his walk, further into his growth, further into his communication between him and the Lord, so he's understanding more, he's learning more. And in here, he, on the third time that we give the example, he's telling us that the light is brighter than the sun. Now that carries two distinct things for me. One is that whoever shines that light has to be more powerful than the sun. So just kind of take that little tidbit of information. And the second one is that it has to be someone who can speak to him that he can hear and understand. Okay, now moving on. Now the Bible does not tell us in these accounts, which are the three accounts that we just talked about, that Saul thought or knew if who he was speaking to yet up to this point, now understand, not, not beyond this point, but up to this point, whether it was a man or an angel, but that he knew without a doubt that it was someone more powerful than he was. So understand that. Up to this point right now, he knows that whoever it is is someone that can knock him out, take him out, whatever you want, but has more power and deserves respect from him. That's why he says, Who are you, Lord? So that's the first thing he recognized. Okay, moving on. Still in verse 5, and here's where it gets good, people, so stand by. It says, And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard to kick against the goads. Now, this is what it's all about. It is here where we find, or I don't want to say we, is where I found my precipice, if you will, that point where I began to recognize this picture that is being painted here through the scriptures. It says, and it was the name of Jesus. It was the name of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you guys kind of noticed, but the girls up here were singing about what? The name of Jesus. Do you see how everything is kind of pointing at one thing? I mean, they, they read from Philippians. They sang a song, of what, what a beautiful name. They, they sang songs. So it, it was all with a desire to begin to prepare your heart for this specific point. Now, for those of you that are turning, please turn to Romans chapter 14, verse 9. Romans chapter 14, verse 9. Here we find, starting in verse 9, it says, For this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Now, we see, now, we see that Paul, because now he's the one that wrote the book of Romans, Paul is actually quoting, quoting Isaiah chapter 45 and he's verse 23. So we're going to do a little exercise. For those of you that can follow us, Turn to Isaiah 45, because we're going to camp out there just for a little bit. So this is an exercise in going back and forth in your Bibles. Isaiah 45, and I'll start reading at verse 21. 
It's kind of cheating for those of you that have electronic Bibles. You guys just push a little button and you're already there. I remember when I first came to the Lord, I was like, where's Isaiah? I don't know where it is. Go to the back, go to the back, go to the back. No, no, the other way, the other way. So don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. Now, there you go. See, there's there's that electronic Bible. Isaiah chapter 45, starting in verse 21. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have I not? The Lord. And there is no other God beside me. Let me repeat that. And there is no other God beside me. I, a just God and a Savior, and there is none beside me. Look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out from my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue take an oath, he shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength to him, Men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. Now, the reason why I want to just kind of camp out here, just just for a little bit, and we're going to get back to to, uh, Acts in just a minute, is, is because there are specifically three three times here in this portion of Scripture that it says, there is no other God. Okay? And then again, it says, none beside me. And then, again, it says, there is no other. Okay? So, the, so what I want to kind of make sure you guys understand, and there is no way that I can sit here and explain the Trinity. I can't. All I can tell you is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we know, because the Bible tells us, that it was Jesus who died on the cross and became our Savior. Okay, so I want you to recognize and see that right here, Isaiah, Isaiah by, by, by prophecy, which is inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us that there is only one God. And why is this so important? Remember how I told you that Saul was a Pharisee? Well, the Pharisees knew, if you will, everything about the Old Testament. They knew everything about the law. They knew everything about the Psalms. They knew everything about the poetry. They knew everything. In other words, I'm not saying, because I don't know for a fact, but they may have had it memorized, everything. So, but what I am saying is that the Bible tells me in the book of John that the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance everything that I have learned. So the key here is that first I have to learn it, then he'll bring it to remembrance. So throw that in the back of your mind. That's going to be another what I would call a circumstantial evidence. Okay, now we're going to do one more jump real quick, and that's to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. The book of Philippians, chapter 2. And after this one, I'll just quote him and read him just, just to make sure that we move uh, a, a, little, a little faster pace. But if, if you can, turn to Philippians, chapter 2, and I'll start reading in verse 5. Well, they got it already. See, these guys are fast. Here it says, Let this mind be in you, which also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of man, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Now, the girls, they, they quoted that verse. And I was thinking, yes, go, go. But then they stopped short. They stopped. But that was okay, no, because any part of the word of God is just an awesome blessing. But see, the, the, the thing that blows my mind, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Now, that's another circumstantial piece of evidence. Remember that. Put that in the back of your mind. Every knee shall bow. Okay, now comes the question. Is we're moving on and looking at the circumstantial evidence. What is it about the name of Jesus that is so powerful? What is it? What is it about that name? Well, here in Philippians, we're told that it's the name above every name. So you have to, I mean, can you really understand that? No, you can't. But the only way I can look at it is that you're in line. And, and you're trying to get to the front of this line. And you have no idea how long the line is. However, the name of Jesus is going to be at the front of the line. It's beyond your reach. So I, I can't, I can't. It's above. I mean, there is no other name. Now, I know that someone's going to say, well, I know God doesn't speak in English. He speaks in Hebrew. Yeshua HaMashiach. Oh, I had to practice that one. How do you like that? That's Jesus Messiah. There. That's still the name of Jesus. Yeah. It's still the name above every name. And that we know because of this. Well, what is it so powerful? In the book of Luke, chapter 10, verse 17, B, it states, demons are brought into submission by the name of Jesus. Demons are brought into submission by the name of Jesus. I'm not going to be messing with demons. I know they exist, but I'm a coward when it comes to demons. Well, I'm a coward when it comes to a lot of things, but, but specifically demons. I'm not messing with them, but the name of Jesus. We're told in the Bible that when Michael the archangel was fighting with Satan in regards to the body of Moses, he said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael's a pretty bad dude. He's an archangel. I guarantee you there's nobody on the face of this earth alive today that can come up against him. I don't care if you're Steven Seagal, no offense, or who you are, you cannot come against him. And yet he said, the Lord rebuke you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, we are told that we are washed, we are sanctified, we are justified in the name of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be washed? Well, if you're dirty, now you're clean. What does it mean to be sanctified? If you weren't chosen before, now you're chosen. Now you have been chosen for him. You are sanctified. You have been set aside. And what does it mean to be justified? It means, real simple, just as if you had never sinned. Once again, justification means just as if you had never sinned. In, in what? Only in the name of Jesus can you be that way. Only in the name of Jesus. Now, why is that so important? Well, the Bible specifically tells us that you cannot enter into heaven unless you're perfect. You have to be perfect to enter into heaven. You have to be spotless. <laughs> Sorry, I know I can't get in that line. As a matter of fact, there is no line of spotless people. The Bible specifically tells me that everyone has fallen short and has sinned. Everyone, yet the name of Jesus will wash you, will sanctify you, and will justify you. And see, that's what's so important. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, we are told that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Oh, what do you mean, saved? Well, that's how you get washed. That's how you get sanctified. And that's how you get justified by being saved, by being born again. Colossians chapter 3, 
verse 17, tells us that everything we do, we are to do it in the name of Jesus. Everything that we do, we are to do it in the name of Jesus. Now, kind of getting a picture of this? Kind of getting a picture of this name that's above every name? This name that has power to do things that we can't even understand? In John chapter 14, verse 13 and 14 tells us, And whatever you ask in my name, this is Jesus speaking, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So, Sal, you're telling me that that name of Jesus, which is above every name, that name of Jesus that can save me, and then once I'm saved, I'm then washed, I'm then sanctified, and then I'm justified? Yes. But Sal, don't forget you also said that anything I ask for, he'll do for me. That's according to his will. That's according to his will. And, and this is, I, I really believe that this, this is important. It's a joke, but it's not a joke because it really happened. Years ago, uh, let's see, I've been retired. Uh, to, back in 95, 95 or 96, more or less, I was in some training, and there was these guys from, from my work, and we were all training. And, then, and this was back when the, when the lotto had just kind of started, and, and it had gotten all the way up to $85 million back then. And they were telling me, they were telling me, Sal, come on, contribute, contribute. And I was saying, no, guys, I, I, I really don't want to do it. I really don't want to do it. And they were bugging me and bugging me. And they said, come on, it's only $5. Come on. And, and I said, no, no, guys, I, I really don't want to do it. And they said, well, why? And I said, okay, I'll do it, but you've got to let me explain to you one thing. They go, what? I said, if I do this, I'm going to pray to the Lord. I'm going to pray to God. I'm going to pray to Jesus that if this money is going to cause me to sin to not let us win. Oh, no, yeah, fine. No, no, go ahead. Just give us the $5 so we can buy more tickets. Yeah, no, come on, come on, give it to me. Well, I pitched in my $5. A couple of days passed. We came back, back to training again the day after, you know, the night before it happened. They wouldn't talk to me. They wouldn't talk to me. And I'm like, why are you guys mad at me? Oh, you had to pray, huh? You had to pray. We didn't win. And you know, I'm not going to say that the Lord answered my prayer, but he did answer my prayer. Because if I would have won, do you think I'd be here right now? I don't know. Maybe I would be. I wouldn't be. But the key that I'm trying to say is this, is that I prayed in the name of Jesus. And these guys knew that I prayed in the name of Jesus. And yet, even though they were, I would say 99% of them were unbelievers, they were kind of like, why did you have to pray? You ruined it for the rest of us. But anyways, getting back, let's, let's get back to Acts chapter 9. Let's turn back to Acts chapter 9. And, and we're going to still camp out in, in verse 5 because verse 5 is just so, so important to me. And it says again, let me read it to you. And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard to kick against the goads. Now, every time I say goads, I wonder, how many people don't really know what a goad is? Okay, well, so that I don't keep thinking about it, I'm going to explain what a goad is. Okay, what I want you to think of is a sheep herder, okay? So it's a herder. And it's not the big stick that has a hook like that, the one that they use to pull people off the screen or whatever. No, it's not. What I want you to think of is something maybe this long or, or maybe a little shorter, but on one end, it has a point. It has a sharp point. Okay, not real sharp, but it's a sharp point. And on the other end, it's fat and thick, kind of like, you know, kind of like, a, like, you'll say my fist, and then right here it gets real skinny, like the size of my finger, but just goes like this, tapers down. And, and that's called a goad. And what they would use, they'd use to hit the animals with it. So when they try to kick you, you either you poke them, or you can hit them on top of the head with it, or you can hit them, but that's it. So, so the picture here is that, no matter how many times these goats or sheep would kick, they weren't going to get anywhere because that goad would keep potent, poking at them. You know, goading them. Have you heard of that thing? Oh, you keep poking them or pushing their button. That's what that means. Okay, verse 5. Jesus states 
I am Jesus. Now, here's the interesting thing that I have read this portion of Scripture, and I have mentioned it, that I have read it several times. I don't know how many times, but several times. Uh, I'm going to say at least 30 times, maybe more, possibly even more than that. And how many times have you read it? You know, you don't need to answer, but I just want you to, to, to have that number in your mind. And those of you that are on the Bible bus or those of you that, that love the book of Acts, you know, you, you've gone through it a few times, perhaps. Uh, this, now, I didn't see this until now, and I hope I have your attention now. I really do have, hope you have your attention and that you're wondering what I'm talking about. And the reason why is that Saturday morning, we have a men's small group, and I thank the guys for being here, and I thank my sister and my niece for being here, because I figured that if, if none of you other guys showed up, at least I had them. So I was happy to do that. But we have, a, we have a thing that one of the brothers always says. He says, break it down, brother. Break it down. What does this mean? Break it down. So right now, I'm going to break it down for you. I'm going to break down what I think is one of the most amazing things that I've seen in this portion of Scripture since my coming to Christ. Okay, it says, Here you have a man who wants to imprison and possibly kill Christians. Okay, we know who this guy is. We know he's a bad guy. You, he's an Al Capone of, of Jerusalem, if you will. He's, he's the big honcho. He's the hitman, whatever you want to call him. But he's a bad dude. Now, he is on the ground due to a bright light that is stronger than the sun. We're told that, okay? He asks, who are you, Lord? Okay. All he knows is whatever it is, he has to show respect. He has to. He cannot compete with the brightness of this light. He cannot compete with what's going on. He doesn't understand. He doesn't know. He hears, I am Jesus. I am Jesus. He is already on the ground, and all he could do is start trembling. Now, here's what you really need to look at, and why I'm building this up as, as, as much as you, I can. Okay, go back to verse 5. Okay, make it 4. Verse 4. Then he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay, verse 6, it says, So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now, after the Lord says that I am Jesus, he starts trembling. Some of you, those out there, and even possibly some of you in Facebook, are wondering, I still don't see it, Sal. You're going to have to break it down even a little more for me. Because I don't see the picture. I don't see what the big deal is here. Well, turn to John chapter 18. Turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, I'll start reading on verse 2. And it says, And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, weapons, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, saying, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Do you see it? Are you beginning to see at least a little glimpse of it? 
We as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ often use this cross-reference with the passage, and I won't get you to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, which states, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. I personally believe that at the point when Jesus said, I am Jesus, Saul's world came crashing down with that statement. Okay, now, in order to grasp this, you have to understand, he knows all the Old Testament. He knows everything that says in the Psalms. He knows all the rules and regulation. He knows by heart, Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, that God Almighty, remember, cross-reference back to Isaiah. What did Isaiah say in his prophecies? There is only one God. There is no other God beside me. I am the only one here. And here, in Genesis, God tells Moses to tell them, I am has sent you. That is what we as believers use as a cross-reference, and that's how we know that Jesus is God. Jesus is Almighty God. Everything that Saul believed right now is wrong. Everything that he's done is wrong. He is now face-to-face with the reality of his worthless self. Everything that he has done means nothing anymore. His world, as he knows it, has just completely fallen apart. Why? Why do you think that has happened? Because here's a man that he was raised. He was trained by a guy by the name of Gamaliel, who was supposed to be one of the best teachers in regards to Judaism, in regards to being a Pharisee. He was going out there killing, because he did. He approved the killing of Stephen. He was imprisoning people. He was destroying homes. Okay, He was just creating a havoc. Everything that he has done, he has now realized, I was wrong. I was wrong. Everything's falling apart. Everything that I thought that I knew and that I had been doing was wrong. What is going on here? Imagine, in the same way, as the thief and the cross. Also, Thomas and Peter. Now let me explain why I'm going to use those three cross-references. In the same way, this happened to them. Okay, in Luke chapter 23, verse 42, the thief, after he had been hanging there with Jesus, he was bad-mouthing him too. He was cursing at him and telling him things. Then all of a sudden, that thief recognized who he was and recognized who Jesus was. And what did he say? Lord, remember me. He came to where literally his world was falling apart. Okay. Now, in John chapter 28, I'm sorry, John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas states... My Lord, my God, when he's face to face with the resurrected Jesus Christ. He states, my Lord, my God. And lastly, Peter in John chapter 21 verse 17 tells Jesus that all he can love is love him as a friend. Now, don't let this get past you. Each one of these guys came to the end of themselves. There was nothing else they could do. Nothing else they can try to achieve. There was nowhere else they can go. Where 
the thief on the cross, where could he go? He couldn't get off the cross. He couldn't run away from the fact that he came face to face with. He recognized it, surrendered, and came to it. Thomas could not make another excuse. Now remember, Thomas said, I'm not going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead unless I can take my finger and put it in his wound. No more excuses for Thomas. And the Bible tells us that he didn't even have to do that because Jesus said that, that blessed are the ones who believe without seeing. So he had nowhere to go. He came to the end of himself. And then Peter came to the fact that all he had was never going to be enough. That all he had. Now remember, those of you that recognize Peter, he's the guy who always sticks his foot in his mouth always boasting on everything that he's going to do, everything, how powerful he is, how he has a sword, and how he's going to take it out, and he's going to cut off the ear of the servant, and all these mighty things. Oh, I will never forsake you. Even if it means me to die, I will die for you. And yet, when a little girl came up against him, we don't know if she was little, she might have been a big girl, she might have been an Amazon, but when a girl came up against him, he chickened out, started cussing, getting mad. Oh, I don't know him. He denied him. He came to the point where he knew that what he had was not enough. And yet, Jesus met each and every one of these persons where they were at, and that's all that they needed to do. And all they needed to do was to recognize who he was and who they were. And we see that. Now, after all this that I painted for you, my question to you, and hopefully to some of you out there on Facebook or who may see this video, who knows, after the rapture, I don't know. Are you down on the ground right now and just refuse to ask, who are you, Lord? Are you still thinking that you can figure out a way out? Are you still thinking that you can do it? I can do it on my own. I can pull myself up out of this and put my boots on and keep going. Because he will answer. If you're willing to ask, who are you, Lord? He will answer and say, I am Jesus. Now the question is, when you ask that, will you answer, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Now we see that Paul here, he asks that. And it says right here, and it says, verse 6, So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And the Lord told him. And he was obedient. And he followed. Now, I know that you guys think I'm crazy, and well, that's fine, and I love it, because that way, next time, you guys will come again and see that crazy guy and when he's teaching. But I want to leave with you this one thing. Do you recognize who the Lord is? Do you actually know who he is? If you do, surrender to him and ask him, what do you want me to do, Lord? What direction do you want me to go? We all come to a point in our lives, and you know, the Christian walk is one of the most difficult walks there is. It's a constant repenting, and it's a constant being sanctified, being washed. But more important is the initial reaction, the initial acknowledgement where it comes down to the basics do you know who Jesus is? Have you ever asked him, who are you, Lord? And we're willing to hear his voice and say, I am. I am almighty God. There is nobody beside me. I am the one who lived, died, and rose again, and rose to live evermore. And I am the one who justifies you. I am the one who washes you. I am the one who sanctifies you. All you got to do is say, what do you want me to do? Let's pray. Father, I just come before you right now, Lord, and, and I'm a big dummy, Lord, because I do get emotional. 
But I thank you, Father. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I just pray and I ask that those who have heard this or who will hear it, Lord, Father, that you would not allow them to walk away without answering. What do you want me to do, Lord? Father, I just ask that you would just be merciful to them and just keep tugging on their hearts, Lord, until they surrender to you. So, Father, right now I want to ask. I want to ask with all heads that are bowed and all eyes that are closed. And it doesn't matter where you're at. If you're here in front of me or if you're somewhere in the world, if you know that you need to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because I need help right now. Just raise your hand that I can pray with you. Just go ahead. No matter where you're at, just raise your hand. I see your hand. You could put it down. Anybody else? I see your hand in the back. You could put it down. Anybody else before we pray? I see your hand. You can put it down. Lord, you know that they're crying out and asking, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because now I have come face to face with the reality of knowing that you are Almighty God. No one can leave from here saying that they don't know what the truth is. Yet, Lord, I know that by the power of your Holy Spirit, (laughs) you can change lives. You can do the miraculous. You can do what we would never expect to be done, but only by you. So, Father, I pray and I ask for those who raise their hands and, and for the ones that I didn't see them raise their hands, Lord, whoever they may be, wherever they may be in this world, Lord, because they have raised their hand to you, Lord. Father, I ask that you bless them, that you strengthen them, Lord. And Father, I ask that you would just encourage them and build them up, Lord, so that they'd be able to walk and to be ready to come against whatever the world throws at them, Lord. So, Father, I pray that you bless them. In the name of Jesus, amen. Can you guys all stand for the last song, please? Thank you, guys, and God bless you. in your name
inside me. You roar like a lion. You blood as the lamb. You carried my healing in your hands. You walk on the waters. You speak to the sea. You stand in the fire beside me. You roar like a lion. You bled as the lamb. You carried my healing in your hands. Jesus, there is no one like you, Jesus. There is no one like you. Amen. Praise God. Have a blessed rest of your week.